Welcome to the UIUC Talk Show, where we introduce you to the most interesting people with the most interesting ideas. Today, we have, doc, Mr. We have Dr. Chambers with us today, who is the Associate Professor of Advertising here at the University of Illinois. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm feeling pretty well. It's a little rainy outside, but other than that, I'm feeling pretty good. All right. Um, I want to start off with a question that I'm pretty sure you get asked a lot, but um, you have a history, you have a background in history, mm -hmm. right? But you chose to do advertising, or are you pursuing advertising right now? Mm -hmm. So how, how did you decide to pursue this path? Sure, sure, sure. Well, the, the thing is, I started the university in 2001, and even before I started here, our department had courses in called things like advertising in society, advertising history. So we already had a background in not just teaching students the skills of advertising, not just the how of advertising, if you will, but you know the why, some of the broader social, cultural, historical, psychological aspects of you know putting together advertisements and advertising campaigns. And so when I was in graduate school, my own area of study um, dovetailed around the ideas of history. African-American entrepreneurship in the area in the area of African-American entrepreneurship that I studied and continue to study today was in the advertising industry. So that's how the linkage originally came. And then they learned of my work, the department, some people in the department here learned of my work when I was a graduate student, came here, interviewed, got the job. And I've been here, been here ever since. Great. And would you, I know you still refer yourself as an historian first, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, how has like learning the history more helped you with the profession you have right now? Well, I think for me, it's it's learning the why, it's learning the stories, it's learning the basis and the background of advertising. For example, over the last, eh, really the last two years since the murder of George Floyd, a lot of corporations and a lot of companies have tried to grapple with you know issues of race, whether that's within their corporation or within their local communities, what have you. And so one of the things that history teaches us about the advertising industry is that racism, right? Discrimination, segregation has been part of the foundation of the advertising industry ever since there's been anything worthy of calling advertising. The advertising industry kind of as we know it today, we can kind of trace its history back to 1890s. So it's as an industry, it's about 130 years old. Now there's advertisements, things that we can call advertisements and recognize as such, those go back 3,000 years. Right. But in terms of an industry, advertising agencies that are writing copy, that are putting together advertisements, that are placing advertisements, that comes along in about the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. So that, again, as an industry, you're about 130, 150 years old. Well, from its very beginning, it was very restrictive in terms of who could actually participate in the industry. So if we understand that, if we understand that racism, discrimination, segregation were part of the foundation of the industry, well, those things, those policies, those procedures, those practices, those traditions, they've been there for 150 years. So just because you're grappling with them now here over the past two years, you can't expect to solve or adequately address something that's been around for and part and parcel of this industry for the better part of a century and a half. So those are the kinds of things that history teaches and also as a very much a, a forward leaning and a forward thinking position or excuse me, industry, it's also helpful. And I found this over the course of my career. It's also helpful to people for people to understand how advertisements have evolved, how agencies have evolved, how agency holding companies have evolved to at least give them some basis for understanding, you know, how they've gotten where they are today. So you say that since the beginning of the advertising industry, you've said that a lot of these issues have been since the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
explain and you know I, I would love to know why you think that is and I will as well as some uh, like more context on that because to me right let's say I have this X product mm -hmm. and I would like that product to be purchased by as many people as possible mm -hmm. so from the from the producer point of view it doesn't make any sense to segregate on the type of person who buys this product because I want the product to be used by anyone it doesn't matter who it is Tell us more about what I'm missing. Sure. Well, one of the things that you have to that you have to recognize and understand is who advertising agencies then consider themselves talking to, right? Who are we talking to when we say we're advertising? When we when we think about our consumer, who are we talking to? Who they conceived of themselves as talking to were white women, right? And so you're not going to hire African Americans ostensibly, even in your even in your theoretical mind. 1890s, early 1900s, you're not going to hire African Americans to come in and create campaigns to talk to white women, right? That's just not, the, that's just not, that's beyond the racial politics of the time. And so what we learn as we study and we think about the, the, the development and the evolution of, of advertising and marketing in the United States is we think in the United States that capitalism is the, is the ultimate arbiter. Wherever I can go to make the most money as an individual, as a company, as a corporation, what have you, wherever I can go and whatever I can do to make the most money, whatever makes the most economic sense, I will do that thing. To your point, I will sell to as many people as possible. And what history teaches us is that's not true. Race trumps and has trumped capitalism many, many times in, a, in our history. And so that notion of I want to sell to as many people as possible, you have to evolve that a bit. I want to sell to as many people as possible whom I like to sell to, right? And so I don't want my product to become identified, and this was a worry on the part of advertising agencies and, and even their corporate clients, is that notion of, well, we don't want our product to become identified. You know, we don't, we don't want it to become identified as being a black product, if you will. And so for that reason, there's an active avoidance in a lot of ways, cases, and spaces, an active avoidance of any notion that you're trying to market these products to African-American consumers. So did you, did you try not actively not to sell them to them? No. Did you keep them out of African-American-owned stores and things of that nature? No. But did you actively pursue them in the same way that you did other consumers? Well, no, because you didn't want to do so in such a public space because you didn't want to risk rejection amongst white consumers. And that... That is something that, well, vestiges of it are still there today, but that's something that, that many in the, in the industry didn't actively push back against until the 1970s. In the 1970s, for example, so 50 or so years ago now, 1950s, 1970s, for example, we can see studies of academics, people like myself, people like those who would work somewhere like the University of Illinois, studying and researching what happens, right? What happens when we put an African-American in an ad? What happens, right? What do white consumers do? Because, you know, in terms of race for most of this nation's history, it's been about black and white by and large is how it's been outside of some regional, some other regional places and spaces. And so testing that, examining what would happen. Are white consumers going to run away? Right? And it sounds nonsensical to us today, but it wasn't until that pe thinking people, logical people, would sit down and have real conversations about, give you, give you a parallel, what's going to happen? What are people going to do when we put an African-American on TV to deliver the news? This is back in the time when we had you know, three major networks and, and there was the, 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 the social commonality was for people to gather to watch the evening news. But where's, where are they watching the evening news? 
They're watching the evening news in their home. They're sitting in their living rooms. They're sitting in their own intimate spaces to consume this news. And now you've essentially placed a, a black person in their home through the TV, yes, but you've put them in the home. Well, what are they going to do? Are they going to turn you off? Are they going to reject you? Are they going to run away? Are they going to run to your competition? So, you know, that's the, you know, some of the depth of race that's been part and parcel of whether it's, you know, various forms of media, marketing, advertising, and the like. So, um, I mean, today it seems absurd that there was a time where mm -hmm. people would be feel alienated or like run away if mm -hmm. they saw something of this sort, like you mentioned um, an African-American news person, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, but what was it uh, during, I would say, the late 20th century that normalized this or that made people, uh, how did we reach where we are right now? Uh, the simple answer is money. Money wins. Money and, money and pressure, right? In the 1960s, for example, early to mid-1960s, a lot of pressure on advertising agencies, a lot of pressure on corporations, because one of the things that we have to recognize is, is advertising is a particular form of a particular form of communication, but it's also a ubiquitous form of communication. It's everywhere. It's only been increasing ever since the, uh, the start of the 20th century. So it's, it's outdoor. It's in print. It's in our magazines, our newspapers, our televisions, on our radios, what have you. It gets into our digital spaces. And so it's this ubiquitous form of communication. It's there for all to see. And so one of the things that took place in the, in the early to mid-1960s is African-American activists go and they say, okay, one of the things that has to happen is that the image of African-Americans, right, the image of African-Americans has to begin to shift in addition to everything else that we're doing, in addition to our pushes for civil rights, social rights, economic rights, and the like. One of the things that they recognized was the value of image, Right, the value and the power of image. And so one of the things that had to happen was you had to, and what they said to corporations is, you have to use your advertising, or we want you to use your advertising to help normalize, to help normalize the image of African-Americans in the United States. And so what does that mean? Well, when you make advertising, in places or when you create scenes in advertising, you know, tableaus in advertising, a couple of housewives discussing laundry detergent or something along those lines, in scenes where the races, as they would say, I'll use the terms of the time, in places where the races already come together, that baseball game, football game, people in the stands, uh, street corner in New York, large urban city, place like Chicago, in places where those races already come together, they're already, they're already interacting with one another. Show those scenes in your advertisements, yeah. right? It's basic, but it's the beginnings of that normalization of African Americans showing them not necessarily something to be avoided, but just as people who have the same kind of worries and concerns and interests in, in advertisements that that other people do. You know, African Americans wash their clothes, put them in a laundry detergent commercial. African Americans go to fast food restaurants, put them in a in a fast food commercial. So utilize advertising for a broader social concern or a broader social impact by placing them in the advertisements. And again, it seems like something that would be easily recognized or immediately desired, but it took pressure from civil rights activists. It took, pre it took the threat of boycotts. It took government, it took and still takes government intervention. Because again, the worry is, you know, what are other consumers gonna do? As well as just a general desire, general malaise that comes from wanting to keep on doing business as you're doing business. Well, it works for us this way, let's just keep doing it this way. But that way, if you will, was, was far too restrictive.
So you mentioned that the one of the first advertising, uh, like where advertising came from, was three thousand years ago, like way early. And you can even say that if you say that, like, let's say like the Bible was like the first uh, like recollection of history, you could say mm -hmm. that the snake was like the first, probably like the first, um, like you know, the first event in recorded like human history that the snake was able to convince. Um, Adam to eat from the tree of knowledge, something mm -hmm. like that, right? Mm -hmm. Because they use a form of communication as a way to convince um, people. So something I'm interested in, in knowing uh, your answer to would be, what's been, you know, advertising has changed in so many ways, but what are some of the common principles, like common things that do not change throughout the history and they will not change in the future? One of the th that's a great question. One of the things that I say in my in my class is that class says is that advertising is new in its methods. It's new in its methods, but it's old in its ideas. Right? There's always been, or there's always an evolution of how we do it. The method of advertising, right? Going from you know pictures and images in Roman ruins to words, phrases, long copy sentences, through delivery through newspapers, delivery through magazines, delivery on radio, delivery on television, the digital space that we have now. So there's always been a new way of doing it. There's always been a new method. We're constantly talking about new methods of reaching people. But the ideas remain the same. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is get the people in a way that they find intriguing, interesting, what have you, or of meaning to them, and sell them on a good concept, service, an idea, a person, what have you. So those things remain the same. Utilizing persuasive communications to move people to action. That's what advertising is. And that's what advertising will long be until, you know, until our computers are deciding for us what we should buy and we just leave it, we just leave it alone. But even in that, somewhere in there will be an interaction, a human interaction that says, this is what I want. This is what I desire. This is what I aspire to. And advertising's goal is, is to connect the manufacturers of those products with people's interests, their tastes, their desires, what have you. That's the link, the, the B2B link and the B2C link, the business to consumer link and the business to business link. Advertising sits in that middle space between uh, translating what it is that a company, a person, or what have you has for sale in a way that makes sense to consumers, in a way that consumers can care about. Because that's the thing about advertising. When we have a product, when we have a camera here, we have a variety of cameras here in front of us. We have cameras, right? If you're into cameras, if you're into technology, there's a host of things that you could possibly talk about that separates this Lumix camera from a Sony camera, from a Canon camera, from a Nikon camera, and those things would be true. But those things aren't necessarily things that consumers care about, right? Think about it this way. A lot of old copywriters would put it this way. People don't want to make a hole. They don't want to make a hole. What they want to do is hang a picture. Right? And if you're a manufacturer of drills or of hammers or of nails, part of what your job to 
part of what our job is to help you understand that people don't want to just make a hole or they don't just want to place a nail. What they want to do is hang a picture. And not only do they want to hang a picture, but if we dig deeper, we find out what, what they want to do is show their family or what they want to do is show their taste or what they want to do is show people who come into their home that they visited Paris last year or something like that. So it's that understanding of consumers. And if you're just a manufacturer, and I don't say that lightly, but if you're the manufacturer, you might not understand that that's that, that consumer want. What I really want is this. You might want to tell me about your hammer and where it's made and where the, how, the, how you make the handle and your research and design. And all those things might be important, but not to the group of consumers that you're talking to. My job is to help you understand the group of consumers that you're talking to and what it is that they actually want. And that ideally is that, is that human part. So in a way, advertising is about figuring out what people want. Absolutely. So which leads us to ask you the question, like how do, how, how do we know what people want? Because it's like you said, it's very hard because people will tell you, okay, I'm going to buy this portrait as a way to put the cameras in there. Mm -hmm. But in sure, that's part of the reason, but the reason is because they might've been to Paris and they want to show people they went to Paris. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they went to Paris in the first place was to show people. Mm -hmm. So in a way, how do we know what people want? Because if we, like we can have, okay, I think you may want to buy a certain camera. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to, and you, you tell me, I want to buy this camera. But in reality, you may, want, you may want the camera to take videos of your classes so you can put them on YouTube. Why do you want to do that? Okay, you want to help more people in the world to learn about advertising. That's, like, that's the reason that you didn't, that you kind of subconsciously knew, mm -hmm. but you would never tell me that. Mm -hmm. So advertising is about like figuring out exactly what people want. Mm -hmm. How do we know what people want? You, an, you anticipate the challenge of and the, and the need of the profession because it comes in the asking, it comes in the analysis, it comes in the questions, it comes in examining what arguments have been used to motivate people to action before, what, a, what has worked maybe for, a for, for our competition. So there's a host of different questions and points of analysis and we try to dig into as many possible details as we can. There's, you know, there's some people go as far as digging, you know, doing brain scans and things of that nature to find out what it is that stimulates people people to take action. And there are a host of potential answers to that. And as much as we try to individualize advertising, which we do very much today, there's still that notion of, I, I, I've got to find the want, but I've got to find it in, and the message, in a large enough group to be profitable to me, right? Because that's ultimately, ultimately what it's about. I don't need to sell my product to everybody. I just need to sell it to a large enough group of somebodies to help me achieve the profit level that I want, right? That's, the, the, that's what's behind that notion of you know, finding your true fans. You know, because some people think, well, I, I need to sell my product to everybody. No, you don't, you don't have to sell your product to everybody. There might be the 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 people out there who love what it is that you have to sell and you just have to reach, you have to talk, you have to maintain your connection with them. And if you do that, Profitability will take care of itself, but the advertising and the learning comes in the analysis, it comes in the asking, it comes in the, it comes in the testing, it comes in the trying, it comes in the retesting, redesign, redelivery, redevise, and go at it again until you find that, that, that point, those points of nuance and those points of access that allow you to reach the people that you want to reach. But the thing is, you can't stop, right? You can't stop your analysis because we're always changing. 
right? Your consumer base could always be changing. So your, your, your advertising argument is valid only as long as the people continue to receive it. Maybe they'll stick with that argument for three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, but probably not. And so that's what your agency's job is, is to be that expert to help you understand your consumer base. You're the experts on the manufacture of your product and a whole host of other things that are connected to its, you know, its logistics, its distribution, its design. But in terms of how it's to be sold, well, that's, that's us. Because our job is to understand the people that you're trying to reach. Right? And that's what you've hired us for. So, like, you already know that advertising has already touched, like, every sphere of life today, right? Mm -hmm. every, every company that you see, um, if they want to sell their products, they know that they have to be good at advertising. And mm -hmm. companies are getting better and better at advertising. Everywhere we go, we see advertising. Like, like, we open YouTube. If you're just watching a video, we go, like, two or three advertisements. Mm -hmm. We're watching a podcast on Spotify, another advertisement if you're not, if you have the free account, right? So, mm -hmm. we have advertisement in every sphere of life. But... And it, it's all benefiting the company at the end of the day, right? What, what are advertisements for? Just it's like we talked about. It's capitalism at the end of the day. So mm -hmm. when when do you when does the company or if a company stops and thinks about the ethical and the environmental impacts of that advertisement, or just if people keep buying product recklessly or mm -hmm. their product recklessly, like does a company stop and think about it? Companies do. And companies and companies will have, and companies are ultimately made up of people. Companies don't make decisions, right? We were talking about Microsoft earlier. Microsoft doesn't make decisions. People at Microsoft make decisions. So ultimately, that then move on behalf of the company. So ultimately, companies will make those decisions. And but the, that line will be different for each and every person. That line will be different in terms of, you know, how much do we give back to the community? How much do we practice ethical manufacturing processes? How much do we go beyond the legal or the regulatory standards of our industry, whether we're manufacturing coats or computer chips or cell phones, what have you? So that question is going to be answered almost as differently as it is amongst people. It's going to be it's going to be answered differently based upon what is or is not profitable to the to the shareholders of that company because that's the thing that we sometimes overlook that at least in the United at least in the United States right the law basically says that companies have to be administered in a way that's profitable to the shareholders right that's it so I may want to do a thing but if the shareholders like it no that doesn't really work for us then the chances are that that thing is not going to be done. So it's not to say that ethics do not come into it because they absolutely do, but the line is fluid and, and each company is going to find its own, its own place and its own space on it. And the other thing is that we have to remember that in the, 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 the media system that we have, and it's not to say that there can't be another media system because there's, there's multiple opportunities uh, for different ones. But in the media system that we have, advertisements are just part of the trade-off. Right? Because ultimately, think about it this way. You pay for access to YouTube. But unless you have YouTube TV, you don't actually pay for YouTube. You pay for access to Google, but you don't actually pay for Google. You pay for access to the various websites and the content and the blogs. And we pay for access to our television shows. But we don't actually pay for the shows themselves, necessarily. The trade-off is somebody wants to talk to us. Somebody wants to reach us. They want to sell us a, you know... <laughs> Flex, flex seal adhesive spray or something like that. And so they pay for that access. And in paying for that access, they help support the content. And then we get the content. And then our part of the role is to watch it as long as it's on. But then what do we do? We hit the, you add, you know, in the digital example, you hit the skip button, button as soon as possible. But 
every great once in a while, right? every once in a while, you pause. You don't hit that skip button and you watch just to see what happens. That's advertising. Right? That's advertising. And so that's the trade-off. We get content and that's that's been the trade-off. We get content. Back in the day, we got lower prices on magazines or newspapers. We got radio shows. We got to watch television shows. And the trade-off was somebody else is paying for the show and I have to I have to deal with their advertising. That's the that's the modern media system. And if you can aggregate audience, I tell I say this to my students. No matter what you've done, and no matter what you do, if you can aggregate an audience, sooner or later, somebody is going to come along and ask you for access to that audience and want to pay you for access to that audience. Right? Now, whether or not you choose to take the money is going to be up to you, but if you've got a large enough audience, somewhere somebody's going to want to try to reach them to sell them something. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think uh, you mentioned some of the products like Google, Facebook, all these products, they're free. Mm -hmm. and. That's the only reason why they could be free. And, you know, these companies are not necessarily bad. They have, like you said, they have these audiences that are selling that in order to provide a service to as many people as possible for free. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't have the business model, that would not be possible. Sure. Perhaps we have a different business model, maybe. But people, uh, you know, they talk bad about these companies all the time. And in reality, you know, yes, they're doing this trade-off, but they're making these products for available for as many people as possible. You, know, you, mentioned, you mentioned something interesting that was uh, true fans. What do you mean by that? That's it. Oh, yeah. true fans. True fans are the people that are going to buy your product almost uh, as a, just as a matter of habit. right? Mm. Your, your true fans are those who you can think of them as the type of people who follow a rock band from city to city, or at least every time they show up in their city, they always go to see their concert. They have knowledge, they have insight, they have awareness of the group, and they are totally into that group. And as long as that group continues to meet their needs, They'll, they'll remain a fan and they are the ones that, that buy the records. They're the ones that buy the merchandise. They're the ones that, that watch the specials when we come on to television or in the digital space. Those are our true fans. They go out of their way to consume our content. Now, a fan, well, they might, they might occasionally watch. They might pick up an album here or two. They might, they might go on iTunes or whatever and they might buy a song. True fan buys the whole, whole album. True fan always comes to the concert. True fan always has the merchandise. True fan advocates on our behalf. True fan talks to others about us, right? So they're contributing their time, they're contributing their attention, they're contributing their money to what it is that we do, right? So that true fan, that super fan, that super user, if you will, they're loyal, right? They're advocates, they spend, and they might be enough to profitability. So if I have a hundred people who each spend a hundred dollars, or I have a hundred people who each spend ten dollars. I'd rather have the hundred who spend the hundred, right? That can be the difference in the true, in, in the true fans. Or if I have two hundred people that spend ten dollars, I still haven't equaled that hundred who spend the hundred. Three hundred people who spend ten dollars, I still haven't equaled that. But I just gave you hundred who spend the hundred. And so sometimes people and creators and media types they can be so so quick to want to search out numbers. Right. Well, we have this many hits, this many views, but okay. Well, how many, how much of that turned into capital? How much of that turned into cash? You're so, so much in a hurry to aggregate and get a large number of users, a large number of consumers. Well, you overlooked 
How much are those consumers spending? How much did it cost me to acquire those consumers? What's that return on investment? And when we search out and we think about the true fans, the actual number that we need, now we might want large numbers, but the actual number that we need to, to reach the level of profit that we want might be much smaller than we think because of how much those true fans would actually spend if we have the right argument, if we have the right merchandise, if we have the right group of things to reach them. Yeah, I first learned about this idea about four years ago, and this mm -hmm. idea comes from Kevin Kelly, which is the founder of Wire Magazine, mm -hmm. and he applied this idea to freelancers and people in the internet making content and stuff like that, and he, he said that you need about 1,000 mm -hmm. true fans as a way for you to have a, make about 100K a year mm -hmm. with people who would buy everything you do, like you said, concerts, everything. Mm -hmm. And recently, a partner at a venture capital firm from California, uh, this, this lady, he, she changed the model and she would even argue that only with a hundred people, then you would even have with a hundred true fans, mm -hmm. you would be able to have a, a profitable and career where you can, are able to, you know, do what you want in a way that you don't have to focus on the number, mm -hmm. but perhaps you can focus more on the quality because once you have that, that number, you know, you don't need that much to like improve your quality of living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's always a question of how, to your point, it's a question of how and where and why do you want to try to scale, right? Do you want to try to scale to be, you know, the, up with the Microsoft and the Apples and the Facebooks of the world? Well, you know, there's different things that you may have to do. But if it's a if it's a side hustle, if it's a freelance gig, if it's something that you're doing, you know, if it's, if it's another stream of income for you, then the number of fans that you need, the number of consumers, the number of customers that you need, right, if you do your analysis right, might be much smaller. And then that's going to change your argument. Then that's going to change your approach necessarily because you recognize, I'm not trying to talk to everybody. I'm not trying to talk to everybody who wants to take a class in filmmaking. I'm trying to talk to a certain group of somebodies who will have an interest in what it is that I have to sell. And helping you understand that argument, let alone deliver that argument, is what advertising uh, and marketing to a lesser extent is what advertising is for. In your experience in this industry, mm -hmm. um, have you come across a company where um, like, it, it's advertising it has done more harm than good to the society? Mm, I think the tobacco companies would, would be uh, would be, would be first um, first on that list because of what tobacco companies knew about the the harmful nature and the harmful impact of their products and how long they worked behind the scenes and in some cases in front of the scenes how long they worked behind the scenes to keep that knowledge from people or to tamp down that knowledge from people um, we don't think about cigarette smoking as much anymore because it's it's dwindled significantly in terms of it being a habit at least in the United States. But for a very long time, some of our largest and most present and most visible advertisers were marketing a product that was harmful, to, you know, to you. So I I would put our cigarette manufacturers at the top of the list uh, anytime. So, how do you regulate this? But like. It's, it's at the discretion of the company how they want mm -hmm. to advertise their product. And there's nothing overlooking them mm -hmm. on, 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 or saying like, okay, if you, if you do this, it's going to be bad for the people who are watching this or it's going to affect people in the, in the negative way. Mm -hmm. Do you think there should be some, I don't know, maybe legal regulation or some, some, some authority in every company that overlooks that this advertisement is, is ethically um, I would say correct for the society or 
Well, you, you raise a good question. The thing with ethics is that ethics are often personally defined. Right. Right. I was talking with, I've talked with a number of people who were entrepreneurs in the advertising space, African American primarily. And I, I often ask each one of them, you know, are there products that you wouldn't sell? Are there products that you wouldn't take your, your talent, your creativity for doing advertising as their talent? Are there products during your career? Cause many of them are retired now. Are there products during your career that you wouldn't sell? Some of them answer tobacco. I wouldn't sell tobacco products. Others might answer alcohol. I wouldn't sell alcoholic beverage products based on their own personal ethics, their own code of ethics. Others said, is the product legal? Yes. That's my boundary. That's my standard. If the product has not been outlawed, if the product, if the society has not decided that the product is negative enough, it's dangerous enough, it's hampering enough that it should be outlawed, then that means it's legal for people to buy. If it's legal for people to buy, then that means to me it's legal to sell and I'm okay with selling it. So those ethics again are going to, are, are going to vary from person to person and they're going to, and they are going to vary from agency to agency and company to company. And, and each person, and I talk to students about this a lot, each person will have to decide, well, what am I going to do if I go out there into the world, in the work world, if I go into the work world and I'm asked to use my talents to sell something that I find ethically challenging, what am I going to do? And I said, you'll have to address that in each instance. Right. Maybe, maybe you'll ask to be moved to another team. Maybe you'll ask to be taken off of the product. But what if the answer is no? Right. And the answer, and the answer that comes back is, if you won't work on this product that, are, that is a client of our agency, then you are fired. Well, now what do you do? That's where the proverbial rubber meets the road when you're actually confronted with that individual choice that's going to impact your individual life rather than as a broader kind of social concern. Okay, so the flip side. Um, have you, have you, or can you talk about a company which has prioritized its ethical, um, I would say, repercussions on the society over profits when it was advertising? You know, over profits is, is a difficult one, but I would say that, you know, companies over the last, really over the last 20 to 25 years, this, this, even this concept of social responsibility, you know, we've kind of ebbed and flowed with how much we prioritize it. Give you a quick example. A good example might be some of the cosmetics companies now. Um, with their representation of body type, their representation of body image. Uh, some, some countries in Europe are a little further along than, than the United States in that they, they disallow certain types of digital manipulation, right? You can't, you can't take a picture of a model and then, you know, necessarily make her slimmer using digital technologies or change the wrinkles in her face or what have you. That's just not allowed. And so those types of, and so getting away from those types of images that show us uh, depictions of the human body that just aren't achievable, right? And so certain companies have gotten away from that. Dove, for example, a number of years ago uh, with their Real Beauty campaign, in which the idea is we will show women as they are, we'll show women of multiple body types, of multiple body sizes, and the like. We're seeing more of that even here in the last couple of years. I'll be interested to see how much it continues. I've seen more diverse images and advertisements. A company like Target tries to do a lot of that. More images of people, for example, in wheelchairs. More images of people who have, uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're missing part, parts of their body. 
right? Those people exist in our society. We just hadn't seen them in our advertising because the the idea of advertising is we present perfect people,、mm. perfect people in perfect situations that are always happy, engaged with our product. Well, perfect doesn't exist, right? Doesn't. So I would put companies, some of the cosmetics companies,、uh, into that space. They get deservedly criticized, but I think that the you know the the their hearts were in the right place.、Um, but you know the、uh, some of the alcoholic beverage companies that supported some of the weak hard things that tried to curb underage alcohol、uh, consumption. I think that we could put some of those in there. Um, but some of that's also been reactionary. It's been re- reactionary to public pressure. It's been reactionary to threats of regulation. But you know whether you, whether you lead a, whether the horse walks to the water or though you drag the horse to the water, as long as they drink, I think that's our you know your primary your primary concern, so to speak. But but the the cosmetics companies would be would be amongst the first on that list for me. You mentioned that advertising is a form of communication.、And、communication、mm-hmm. tells us exactly what we're thinking. What we're, what Advertising is a form of communication that tells us about the state of society,、mm-hmm. and you could argue that you know in the 1970s, 1950s, that reflected what we as a society value or didn't value, or we were not thinking about. Like today, like you said,、mm-hmm. we see our, a greater diversity in the form of advertising communications, and we see that as a society, as a society, we seem to care about those things more.、Mm-hmm. And we always look at the past and we say, "Oh my God, these people were horrible." X, Y, and Z. And but I'm wondering, what, what do you think? What are some What are some of the things that we as a society are not doing enough of, or things that we're doing right now that we will come back in the future? People from the future will be like, "Oh my God, how how was that even possible?" I think you know the one you, you raise a good question. I think the number one that I number one one that I think about is. How much did you or did you not think about the impact of your te- technological consumption on our planet? Right. How much did you think about what happened to the computer monitor that you replaced and threw away? How much did you think about the cell phone? How much did you think about the tablet? How much did you think about the laptop? And that I think is going to be one of the number one things that they will come back and ask us about. Our you know our children and our children's children will ask us about. You guys were just using this technology like it was disposable. You didn't think about its recycling. You didn't think about its impact on the planet. You didn't think about where it went when you disposed of an old CRT tube monitor. Why not? You know, did you did you think that it would just disappear? And I think that's one of the number one things that they'll come back and ask us. Let alone obviously things that are maybe a little more top of mind, like the impact of you know the consumption of fossil fuels. But in terms of what the average consumer kind of touches every day. Uh, the technology that we touch every day, and when we replace it, how much do we think about that? Because I think that they will ask, "What did you? Well, what did you do with your new phone that your old phone couldn't do? Did you did you change something that you did? Well, no, I still make calls and surf Facebook and Instagram and you know post videos on TikTok. Well, didn't your new phone do that? Didn't your old phone do that? Well, yeah, but you know it had been two years. Well. Then I think they'll look at us and ask us questions about waste because of, of the potential negative impact on our on our planet, right? Because the stuff has to go somewhere. Yeah, I, I think it's a fundamentally a question of business models、mm-hmm. about fixing that and also about incentives. I think that I, I think I often come back about the idea of incentives, and I、mm-hmm. think that's where we can fix all the problems. But、um, that's a that's a something I, I, I need to think more about.、Mm-hmm. Um, 
So Mark Andreessen, which was the guy who, who went here, he was a grad student at the University of Illinois, and he was the first person who developed the first web browser, as we know it today. Mm -hmm. And in the 1990s, he usually used to work at the NSA, NCSA. Mm -hmm. And something that was interesting about him is that he wasn't the best programmer per se, or he wasn't the guy who invented the best technology per se either. There's a lot of, there were a lot of browsers out there already. And when he invented Mosaic, which is the browser he created, and then Netscape, he didn't really, like, the technology he created wasn't something that he invented out of nowhere. A lot of the things were already there. Mm -hmm. And something he was able to figure out, and something that he, he says, in now it's kind of common knowledge in like, Silicon Valley, is that, you know, make something people want. How do you do that? You talk to your users. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Mark Andreessen did all the time. Talk to your users, talk to your users, talk to your users. He would go on the discussion forums. He would go everywhere where the future users would be at mm -hmm. and talk to them. Mm -hmm. But talking to them, it's a messy process. <laughs> yes. Very messy. Because we don't really know what they want. Which, again, goes back to the question we were talking about earlier. And you mentioned something about brain scans. I actually... I kind of um, wrote a book with this neuroscientist in, in about the future of marketing. And a lot of the things, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, the different MRIs and all of these machines that tell you about the brain scans, about what they want. And even then, we still don't know because there's something in our brains that doesn't really reflect. Like we, it's something like, it's kind of a part of, a, of our brain that we cannot access like fully aware. Mm -hmm. But it's still, I do think there's a methodology that people in the advertising industry have used in order to know what people want. Mm -hmm. Again, long preface, long context, but I, I think it's important in order to, to understand the question. So how do we talk to the users in a way that we can accurately know what they want? You know, I think that's, that's gonna vary for each and every user base. It's gonna vary for the types of questions. I think it's gonna vary for the types of technology. And sometimes the, the answers that you might get back, they might seem very, very logical. They might seem to be the exact thing to apply. And it turns out that they're not. And that's the, that's the gap between, or the division between the human and the machine, right? The machine you put in the right input, you can predict the output that you're going to get necessarily. With the human, you can ask me directly, and I can tell you directly. Then you can give me what I told you that I want, and I tell you, no, that's not it. That's the human part, right? That's the, the, the unpredictable part that changes in the moment, that changes in the second, and that's the part that you just can't get to. And so you make, and you go through your analysis, and you make your best guess, and you deliver, and you test as often as you can, but ultimately, at some point, there's gonna be the part where you put it out there, and, you you're, and, and you're gonna say, okay, I'm done with it, here's the thing that I have for you, and that's gonna be the moment that you, that you see, right? That's gonna be the moment that you see do the people actually want it? And until you reach that final point, there's always going to be trepidation that you do or that you don't have that answer, right? Because you're dealing, you're still dealing with human beings. And as human beings, we change in the moment. We change from day to day. We change from week to week. We change from month to month. And so when you ask me, I didn't lie to you as a, as a consumer, somebody that you're testing and you're analyzing as a consumer. You asked me, 
I didn't lie to you. I didn't, I didn't hide my answer from you. You asked me a basic direct question. I gave you a basic direct answer and you gave me back what you thought was based around my answer. And then I tell you, no, that's not it. That's the, that's, that's dealing with humans, baby. That's dealing with, that's dealing with human beings. You, know? you said it depends. Um, how about I give you a, a more feasible scenario? Mm -hmm. Something like our show. Mm -hmm. That we're making videos, and you know what's you know you know what it's about, and you can understand more or less what we're doing here. Again, mm -hmm. we're not trying to do this to get famous or anything. We're doing this for ourselves to have fun. Mm -hmm. But let's say we want to make this as big as possible. And we want to make money. We want to do all these things. Again, that's not our purpose. But mm -hmm. let's say we're trying to make debts, mm -hmm. and you are member. You are we hire you as our advertising agency. What would you tell us? First off, I'd say well, who who are you after? Right. Who's your ideal fan? How can, can you know that? You can project. You can try. You can say, for example, uh, okay, we're a couple of show hosts. We're a couple of young guys. We go to school at a, at a university in the, in the Midwest. These are our these are our interests. These are, these are the things that we would like to become known for. These are the things that we would like to become famous for. Maybe we want to talk about technology connected to sports. Let's just use those. Technology connected to sports gambling. Okay, well, our show is going to be about technology connected to sports gambling. Okay, well, then who would be interested in such a thing? Would it be gamblers? Would it be people who want to design technology? Would it be, would it be people who are designing the things that are being used inside stadiums? Or is, is it going to be people that are using the things that are designed as part of the ticket buying process? Right. So who are we talking to? Are we talking to other potential business owners? Are we talking to other, other potential consumers of the gambling technologies? And then based upon that, we begin to identify potential audience. We begin to identify them based upon things like age and demographics, maybe how much they buy, how much they're willing to spend. If we said it's on the consumer side, are the, are these people, are these going to be people who you envision as the type who throw caution to the wind? Right. That I'm going to bet and bet and bet until I get back in the black. Right. I'm not going to end my week in the red. Right. I'm not going to end my week on a loss. OK, that's going to be different than the person who says I've got a specific budget for the week. I'll, I'll only gamble twenty five dollars a week regardless. That might be a totally different audience than the one who says whatever happens every week has to end in the black or, or my budget isn't twenty five dollars a week. My budget's $500 a week. My budget's $5,000 a week. So as we begin to identify those groups that you're after, certainly as part of that analysis, ideally we would have some, we would have some concept as to what's the most profitable segment in there, right? The, is it the person who spends you know, the $500 every once and again, or is it the person who's going to spend $10 a day, $10 a game? Is it, person, is it the type of person who's going to watch multiple sports? They're going to watch baseball. They're going to watch golf. They're going to watch best, uh, basketball and they're going to find, and they're going to want to find a way to bet on all of them. That's so all of those questions would be part and parcel of it, let alone analyzing your competition to see where your competition was at. So if, 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 it's about being as large as possible. Then we get into things like popularity and, and design. But if it's about being, you know, identifying that most profitable group and you say, you know, what we really need, what we're really after is about not necessarily the number of people, but this is what we're after. We want enough income. Maybe it's just to pay for the production of the show. Right. And then with that analysis, we can begin to say, okay, then this is who we want to, this is who we want to go after. Right. We might find that the most profitable segment for you all is going to be the people is being able to talk to and interest people who design the technology that connect people that connect sports and gambling. Let's just say in my example here. And I think that's something you learn. But oftentimes the most successful people do 
the complete opposite. How do you explain such things? Like I can think of, for example, let's keep it to shows because we're doing shows. Like something, the most successful podcaster show, whatever, that has, you know, all the like, you know, CNN, Fox News, all of them combined. Mm -hmm. They don't even, they don't even reach to the level like Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. He is by far the most successful podcaster, everything. Mm -hmm. He was not thinking uh, whether the most profitable thing. He was not thinking of any of that. How do you think such thing? I'll say it this way. Some of the most, and there's all manner of ways to define success. There's all manner of ways to reach it. But some of the most successful people that I found have said, whatever it is that I started, whatever it is that I did, whatever it is that I do, I didn't get in it to get rich. I didn't get in it to get known. I got into it because there was something that I wanted to see in the world. And I just wanted to put it out there. I have, whether it's a point of view, whether it's a style of advertising, whether it's a design for, for, for cameras, whether it's websites, whatever the case may be, there was something, there was just something that I wanted to see in the world. And I delivered it, right? And the, and the, and the other factor is we can, we can try to analyze people's success in as much depth and as many degrees as we can possibly want. But there's, with some of them, there's just going to be something that even if we follow the, if we decide on what their formula was, even if we practice their, put forth their exact formula, we just won't have it. It's a little, it's a clumsy example, but I'll use it anyway. They're Kardashians, right? Now, we could sit back and analyze them from the O.J. Simpson trial onward and what they did and their family, and where they appeared and all this different stuff. We could say, well, OK, well, we're, we're, we're going to do that, too, to try to achieve the same level of popularity. And even with all of that analysis, there might be there's some ephemeral thing, whether it's timing, whether it's the society of the moment, whether it's the gap that they fit in and the space in the space in which they fit in it and the time in which they fit in it that we just can't replicate. Right. And therefore, we have to find our own gap. We have to find our own niche. We have to find our own angle, our, our own approach. And I think for some, that's where the that's where the passion comes in, right? That's where the there's something I want to see in the world. So therefore, I, I put my work and my effort and my money and my time behind it because that's going to be the thing that sustains us when it you know when it gets hard. Because again, Joe Rogan Joe Rogan is one of those you know ten year overnight successes, right? I'm at it. I'm out there. I'm, I'm putting out content and content and content and content and nobody's listening. Nobody's paying attention, but I want to see it in the world. So I keep doing it. And 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 somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, it happens. Right. But that's that's the that's the ephemeral part. That's the you know, that's the human part, you know, because some, you know, when we're dealing with people. Sometimes, man, we just we just can't predict for as much insight and technology and analysis that we have. At some point, we're just dealing with folks. We're just dealing with people and, and we can't fully understand why they moved in the way that they in the way that they did. So would you agree that the advertising, you know, studying advertising is about learning from the successes? Absolutely. And, and the failures and the failures. How come? Because you can, in, in, in analyzing failure, you can at least try to understand things from the other side, which is maybe they tried, maybe, maybe all of their analysis, right? Maybe they didn't do anything wrong. Their timing was wrong, 
where they ask the wrong question. I'll give you a quick example that I use in my class. One, most of my most of my class, uh, one of my classes, classic. It's called classic campaigns. Most of them are about business successes, advertising successes, or advertising campaigns for products that succeeded and then went on to great great heights. One of them, though, is about a failure, and that's the failure of New Coke back in 1985, mid 1980s, when Coke and their effort to misguided efforts to keep up with Pepsi Cola decided to change their formula. They did everything right. Right? They actually had a good. They actually had a good formula. I remember. They actually had a good formula, but the thing that they couldn't account for was how are consumers, or they didn't account for because they couldn't. How will consumers react when we not only change the old formula of Coca-Cola, but we tell them we are taking away the old formula? Right? We think we've made a product that's better. All of our testing tells us that it's better. When we test people and we test the formula, people say that they like it on and on and on and on and on. So everything we did was right. The thing that we were hampered by, in part, the thing that we were hampered by is that in our testing, we couldn't ask people, well, how are you going to feel about this if the old formula of Coca-Cola is not available? Because we're trying to keep the secret, right? Because we don't want anybody to know that we're thinking about changing the unchangeable formula of Coca-Cola. So in our testing, I can't ask you if we were in that focus group, in a focus group right now, I can't say, well, how would you feel if we, if this was the formula and the old one wasn't even available anymore? Because you might take that and go on the street, hey, everybody, they're thinking about getting rid of the old formula of Coca-Cola. And, and then the cat's out of the bag. So since we couldn't ask that question, when we do try to remove the old formula and we get the consumer response that we get, which is largely negative, now we have to decide what to do. So we did everything right, but the con one condition was such that we couldn't ask what turns out to be the most important question. right? So studying the failures allows us to see things like that. And it's not to say that you come up with a great answer on, well, they should have told people that, they, that they're going to take away the old formula. Well, then what if the secret gets out? Right? Then, you lose all your, then, then you lose all your potential marketing muscle and everything that you were, you were planning to do in that regard. So studying the failures at least illuminates that. At least it offers us another way to look at a challenge, to look at a problem, and to decide what parts of it we're going to, going to apply to our own business. Interesting. And... So, so something I, I also think about sometimes is that there's a lot of uh, survivorship bias in a lot of these studies, and a, think, a lot of what bias. I'm uh, sorry, survivorship mm -hmm. uh, bias, which you know comes from like World War II and whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so in a lot of these things, there's there's a lot of survivorship bias, and with you know not only with advertising, with but a lot of like business and marketing, a lot of these fields where it's hard to either falsify or um, falsify or support a hypothesis mm -hmm. because of you know of what you said and success in a way if i tell you hey in order to be successful you need to wear a leather jacket mm -hmm. the thing is i just gave you my lottery ticket and the lottery ticket is not going to work for you because i won the lottery ticket mm -hmm. ha, like that's not to say that whether wearing leather jackets isn't going to make you successful or that's not to say that studying advertising and, and the past successes and failures isn't going to give you some insight about advertising mm -hmm. or marketing or business or whatever you're studying. The thing is, a lot of the, the focus is about lottery tickets, whether that is lottery ticket for failures or successes. Mm -hmm. And as you described, that's a flaw way to learn because... Mm -hmm. You never know. It's like you said, like the most successful people, they don't even try. They're just making something because they want to, period. Mm -hmm. How do you think about the question? How can 
how should I think about the question of, you know, I know advertising is important mm -hmm. and perhaps, or I know business is important, but perhaps the best way to become a business at, at, and doing business isn't to go to study business school or isn't to, if I want to become the best advertising person, isn't to go to advertising school. Mm -hmm. How do you think about such question? You know, I think I would, I would ask people who say that, you know, they say, well, Joe Rogan didn't this or this person didn't that. I would ask, well, how much do you actually know about them? A, and how much have you actually told them? How much have they actually told you about themselves? Have they told you about all of their struggles, right? Or have they only told you about the portion from which, from which their success first emerged, right? So I was at it for 10 years. My emergence came in year six. So the only place in space from which I tell my origin story is from year six forward. So I never, you know, so we never hear about year zero through five. And so I, I would say that to say, you can analyze a thing to death, right? You can analyze a thing to the point that you don't even start, right? I'll give you a quick nonsensical example. I started, I started a new video game uh, the other day. It's a, it's a role-playing game. So, you know, you design your own character and the like. And so it's an older game, but I just started playing it. So you design your own character. So you can de design this character in a bunch of different ways. We've got, we've got, you know, you can be a lizard, you can be a dwarf, you can be a human, you can be a this, you can be a that. And if you, you know, in choosing that, you can be a, you, you can be a wizard, you can be a fighter, you can on and on and on and on and on. You can get paralyzed by just, uh, well, do I, do I want to make a, a dwarf rogue or do I, do I want to make a, a human fighter or a human archer? No, no, no. I want to make a lizard. You can get so paralyzed in your analysis that you, you don't, you look up and you realize I've been at this game for, you know, three, four, five days. I've spent eight, 10, 12 hours on it and I actually haven't started it. All I've done is design and redesign and start over again and again and again and again, trying to make the perfect character. So you can analyze a thing to death, but you, it's not to say that the analysis isn't valid, but it's what you do as you take the analysis yourself and then take action, right? Because in, in taking anybody's kind of origin story or analysis or area of study, all that you can do is learn from it and then decide which parts of it apply to you. Decide which parts of it apply to your business. Decide which parts of it that you can make use of and trying to move forward in the way that you want to move forward. Right. Not in the way that they moved forward. And that's not to say that their story isn't valuable. But what they would tell you likely is the way that I did it. You can take parts of that. But it might not have the same meaning for you, because let's just say somebody like Joe Rogan. Well, when I first emerged, there was, you know, there, I don't even know how many podcasters, for example, there are right now. You know, but there was there was a time at which, you know, having a blog, let's say. Well, you could count blogs by in the, in the dozens. I, I sometimes chuckle. Um, I was I was actually in one of the rooms in our college where we have some some old and classic, you know, just classic books that people have put in this this one room. And one and I ran across one was that was the book of the internet. Right? There was a time at which we you know we felt we could encapsulate the whole of the internet, and it was true. We can encapsulate everything that's available on the internet in a book. Well, if you started then and you were able to get in on that particular ground floor, well, then maybe your opportunity for success was much different than what mine is now. And, you know, there are billions of, billions of places on the Internet now. But what can you learn from my story? Maybe it's only a tiny, 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 tiny piece. But it could be the valuable piece that helps to carry you forward. Right. But not getting the thing is not to get paralyzed by saying, to your point about lottery ticket, that I have to do it your way.
right? Well, you know, well, why are they successful? Well, he, of course they're successful. He wore a leather jacket, you know, <laughs> and they don't know anything about, you know, the effort that you went through to try and getting guests and, and, and learning to operate cameras and deciding upon your design and the flow of the show and all these places and spaces where you were putting out stuff and putting out content and did it for years and nobody was paying you any mind. And then somewhere along the line, you hit upon the formula that you needed and you're and you're off and running. I don't yeah, I don't want to keep going on, on this too long, but I do want to ask you. You said, mm -hmm. okay, perhaps, you know, it's not about, you know, learning exactly what they tell you. Like for I mean, again, advertising. You learn about Coca-Cola, Apple, all mm -hmm. these companies, very successful companies, and you learn about the failure successes, all of them. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's not about, okay, whether you should, should study or not, it's about learning about what to take from those. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And even if you decide, okay. Coca-Cola did X, Y, and C, I'm only going to take X, even then you don't know. So how can you learn about from first would be, how can you learn about what to take? Mm -hmm. And second, what would be some ways to not just copy, but also implement it? Not implement it, but also like think for yourself as you're creating new strategies. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I, I like to say too is, you know, first we learn to imitate Right. First, we learn to imitate and then we learn to innovate. Right? I learned to imitate. I learned what somebody else's has done. I learned the design of their show. I learned where they set their cameras. I learned, you know, I learned the things that they did and I apply that and I, and, and that's how I start my growth. But then as I start my growth, as I learn, then I decide how and where I, it is that I'm going to innovate. And that only comes to your point. That only comes from taking what I learned and trying to take action on it to see now which parts of it matter to me, now which parts of it have an impact on my life. It's akin to somebody telling you, well, this is how your resume should be designed. Well, okay, all right, well, you tell me this is, I should put stuff in this order, I should, my, my paper should be this color, my, you know, it, it should be, you know, the design should be like this, but not like that. Okay, I tried that, I did what you told me to do. I didn't get the jobs that I wanted. So I redesigned it, right? So I, I tried the thing that I learned. And if it worked for me, maybe I continue forth with it. If it did not, or even if it worked, but not in the way that I wanted it to work, then I decide to innovate in the ways that start to make sense for me. But that only comes from trial and error, trial and success. It only comes from the actual doing. And that's back to that my, my point earlier about analysis. Sometimes people want to, they think that, or they presume that if I just take enough time to figure the thing out, right, and, and, and apply and, and know the, the, the order of steps that I should go through, then that has to equal success. And that's just not it, right? At some point, you have to release the thing to people, if people whom you're selling to, you have to release the thing to people and see how they respond and then take their response and either decide and decide, excuse me, then decide what it is that you're going to do with it from there. So I, I, I film a show, I create a show, then I, I, I release episodes and then I go talk to my audience, right? I go talk to people or I look at other shows that maybe are similar to mine in terms of content, what have you. And I analyze, maybe I imitate, maybe I decide to innovate, but I keep working, I keep moving, I keep trying. Right. And that's the you know, that's the thing. That's that's the pressure. That's how I take what I what I learned from school, what I learned about learning. And now it's my opportunity to apply it in the space that, you know, in the space that I'm in. Yeah, I think a possible solution that, you know, that we both learned from talking to people like you is that. The people who just have the most fun 
and the people who are the happiest and the people who you can just tell the excitement in their eyes mm-hmm. these people are doing things because they want because mm-hmm. they're not doing a project so they can get a job they're not doing x club to put on their resumes they're doing something because they want mm-hmm. and you know sometimes they are successful and sometimes they're not but i think something i've learned over the years of my very young life is that you know if you want to let's say if you want to become a filmmaker there's no need to do why just do x just become a filmmaker just do start making the videos start doing mm-hmm. the thing and like you said put the thing in the world that is not there yet mm-hmm. put whatever you want to create in the thing that is not there yet like and for some reason we're using our advanced abilities of our brain to make these old relationships, okay, I do X to do get Y, I do Y to get Z. When in reality, you want it Z, just go get Z. Mm-hmm. Instead of like just all this like, sh- like you're going here, you're going there, you're going there, like almost like a video game. Mm-hmm. You almost like, okay, I may get there. And like when you get there, like, oh, that's not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's a big um, important lesson that I learned in my, in my short life. Yeah, well, it, you know, you, you, you raise a, a good point because it gets to, you know, what sustains you in the times when it gets hard, right? You know, the, the hardest work that many of us ever will do, we'll probably do by ourselves. Nobody will be around to see it. It'll just be us in our rooms, you know, on a plane, whatever. Nobody will be there to see some of our hardest moments. And in those hardest moments, it's got to be, it's likely going to be your interest in the thing or what that thing will do for you that sustains you. I just, I want to see this in the world. I want to see this exist. I want to, I want to have this film created. So you stay up and you keep editing and you keep editing and keep editing so that you can get it in on time for some, you know, for some film festival. And so that's where that, that's where that passion, that interest, that, that desire, you know, those things come in. Right. That's where those things come in. And, and that's what helps to keep people pushing. And that's what helps to keep people, you know, creating, especially when, you know, because it's, it's an act of courage to create something. It's an act of courage to create it and then release it to people. Because what if people tear it to shreds? Well, if you have that belief in yourself, you then it's yeah, OK. Very possible. <laughs> yeah, man, you, you tore it to shreds. OK. I'm gonna, but I'm, if, if they're constructive and they're tearing it to shreds, then there's probably something when you get down from your feelings, there's probably something or some group of some things in there that is valuable to you that I can then take and I can apply. And then when I relaunch, you know, I apply it and I, you know, and I see what happens. And the other thing is though, as we said about true fans, maybe that person will always hate it. Right? <laughs> well, well, hell, you were, you, you were never gonna be a fan anyway. Right. Right. You were never going to be a fan anyway. I'll give you another quick example from advertising. The Got Milk campaign, if you've, if you've ever seen that one, right, when you've got milk. And one of the things that they decided when they, when, they, when they first launched that campaign was, instead of trying to get people who aren't drinking milk, right, and convince them about drinking milk, let's talk to the people who drink milk, and we just want to try to get them to drink more, mm. right? will be a lot more efficient to talk and talking to people that already do it and remind them of all the places and spaces where milk is the perfect beverage, cookies, cakes, what have So if you're not drinking milk anyway, whatever, we're not, ta- we're not talking to you. Well, we hate your advertising. Well, do you drink milk? No. Well, then who cares what you think? Right? And sometimes I think when we, when we start a thing, you know, we want everybody to like us and then we have to, we have to take a step back and recognize 
you were never going to like me any like my content. You were never going to like my content anyway because it's not for you. Yeah. You know? You know, I, it's funny because I, I, that's how I think about like relationships or friend or even dating or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say like you want to date X person. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you try to fake you know, who you are, mm -hmm. you're going to get tired and the person's going to find out anyway. And if they like you, like they're going to like you anyway mm -hmm. if, if you're you. And I feel like when you're making things, mm -hmm. it's always about being yourself. They like you. That's great because they're really going to like you. Mm -hmm. But if they don't, they really don't like you. That's fine. Yeah. Instead of like being like kind of in the middle ground of like, like no one really likes you, but no one really hits you. Like you're kind of like, ah, you're there. Right. But like yeah. you, you want to have true friends. You want to have, right. you know, people who are there with you no matter what. Right. And I think that's, uh, that's something that, you know, it's always so counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But again, if you do what you want, if you, you're true to yourself, these are things you would even have to think about. Mm -hmm. And I do want to ask you, but you mentioned, what sustains you? your hard moments and your challenges. What is it that, what's that thing? You know, ultimately for me, it's about getting a point of view out in the world that I, you know, that I want to see there. Back when I started my research um, on African-Americans in the advertising industry, nobody had ever had, had researched it up to that point. Um, and I remember asking, you know, asking one of my professors about that. And I said, you know, if I look at the books that are on the history of advertising, I don't see African-Americans there at all. He said, well, nobody's ever looked at it. And one of the things that I knew, and was that it is absolutely 100% demonstrable that any industry that you can think of, any walk of life that you can think of, African Americans have at least tried to be there, right? Now, whether or not they've succeeded or been able to is another question, but they've at least tried. And so for me, I wanted to at least know the story. If you tell me whether there aren't really any African Americans in advertising, I at least wanted to know why, because I knew that there had to be a story there. One, I suspected that they had been there, but they were just had been overlooked by historians up to that point. But two, I thought that the, I thought to myself, well, there has to be a story there for the reasons that they're not. And I wanted to know why. So for me, it's, it's, you know, and the great thing about being an academic is it has its own entrepreneurial aspects because you can investigate questions like that. I want to know why. I want to see that story out there in the world. And so for me, that's what it, you know, that's what it's been. I want to see a certain type of content or a certain type of perspective, or I want to be a certain type of academic. You know, one of the things I often said when I was a graduate student is I want to pursue um, some topic or some area of study that people beyond the academy will want to hear about. I don't just want to talk to people that are in, you know, professors like myself or that, that work at university. I want to be able to talk out there in the corporate space and, and studying what I've been able to study in a department like the one that I'm in, you know, I'm able to do that. I spend a lot of time talking to advertising agencies. I spend a lot of time talking to advertising executives. I've had a wonderful opportunity to have a variety of corporate connections over my career that maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't have if I I was in a more traditional uh, history department, you know, so I've been able to, again, I've been able to put that perspective out there, put that content out there that I, you know, that I wanted to see exist. And that's a wonderful world to have. And it's like, like you said, exactly what you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. You didn't see something in the world and you work hard to make it happen. Yeah. There you go. You're perfect. That's it. <laughs> that's it. What advice do you have for young people in high school and college, your students mm -hmm. as they're enter this world? You know, I think the number one thing for me is always just start. Mm. You know, just start. Whatever it is that you want to see, whatever it is that you want to do, just start. And don't, you know, don't allow others' perceptions of what it is that you want to start 
cloud you or, or stop you. Again, do you do you want to see it exist? Yes. Do you have the passion and energy to try to make it exist? Whether you achieve it or not, do you have the passion and energy to try to make it exist? Yes. Then do it. Right? This is this is the time to do it. I often like to say to the young people, you know, this is the time in life to be selfish, right? You you've probably got not, not everybody's the same, but you've probably got Fewer responsibilities now than as your life continues than you'll ever have. So this is the time to be selfish and pursue the things that you want to see exist. Pursue the things that you want to do. So use this time in your life. Use the resources that you have access to to try, you know, to try to achieve the, the style and the place in life that you want to be. Right? Self-defined, that you've defined, right? Not that you've let anybody necessarily define for you. So think about, you know, think about what your own goals are, and man, go for it. Just go for it. Because that's the other thing. A lot, of, a lot of people want to be things. But when you talk to them, what you realize is you want to be that thing without having done the work to get to that thing. Hmm. Right? Often people will say to me, you know, they ask me what I do and I tell them, you know, I'm a professor and I write books and things of that nature. They said, oh, man, I'd, I'd love to write a book. I said, no, <laughs> no. And, you, you know, you talk to them and I, and I realize... And I don't say this to people because you never want to try to crush a person's dreams, even if they're a little bit nonsensical for them. <laughs> um, you don't actually want to write a book. What you want is a book that's written, right? Mm -hmm. you, want a book, you want a book that's written, and you want to go on book tours, you want to stand up in front of people at you know, the bookstore, and you want to do readings and stuff like that. But you don't actually want to go through the work to write a book. Right, a lot of people. Well, I want to start a podcast. Well, no, you want to. You want to be. You want to be Joe Rogan. You want to be on a popular podcast where everybody's tuning in and you're getting on CNN. Everybody's talking about you. So that's what you. You don't actually want to go through the work of. You know, you go through your podcast and you see how many people are listening, and there's like six, two of whom you're related to. You don't want to deal with that, right? So don't let people who talk a better game than you slow you down from what it is that that you're doing. I got a path, that's the path, you know, that's the path that I'm on, right? And that's the path that, that I'm going to pursue. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's always, it's always, you know, I read once that the root of all evil is like money or any other thing. The root of all evil is actually the thought of, of like, like, you know, like you, like your, like your perception of yourself mm -hmm. is not, is not, what you know it is, but the perception of others is is high, and because of that perception, you live your life with that perception instead mm -hmm. of what you think yourself as. Yeah. Um, so it's I always think about that because it's easy to live in in the perception of others. It's mm -hmm. easy to live in the perception of oh he thinks I'm good, therefore I'm good. When in reality, you know you didn't do your homework, mm -hmm. but the professor thinks they did my homework, so therefore I'm smart. When in reality, you know you didn't do anything, and you know you're not a, as good as a student as you are. And you know you're a bad person, but the perception of, of, of my professor here, he thinks I did great in the advertising essay, when in reality I didn't write it. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's, it's always easy to get corrupted, because once you, once you get corrupted once, mm -hmm. it's so easy to become corrupted again. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it, I think that's very well said, and that's where it's, you know, the other, one of the other pieces is, you know, you, you always have to be careful who you listen to. Right. Right, you always have to be careful how you listen to, because... Everything that people say isn't necessarily whether they're, they're calling it a compliment or not. It's not actually meant for good, right? It's not actually meant to lift you. It's not actually meant to build you up in its own way. It's meant to, it's meant to, it's meant to hold you back or it's meant to hold you down, right? So, again, that's where that kind of 
it's not necessarily a singular focus, but I'll put it in those terms. That's where that singular focus of, you know, and it might change over the course of your life. You know, what is it, what is it that I'm after in this moment, in this space, this time? Then that's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm pushing to. That's what I'm, that's what I'm pushing towards. And that's what I'm going to pursue. And I'm going to tamp, and I'm just going to have to tamp out some voices. Because they don't, they don't, they don't necessarily have that same that same vision for things that I do. Yeah, you know, to end our our show here, mm-hmm. we do a section where we ask, uh, we 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 say a statement and we ask you underrated or overrated. Okay. So, the one I'm very curious about is the Apple 1984 ad campaign. Overrated, or underrated. It's underrated, and I'll tell you why. It's underrated. Actually, it's funny. I just talked about this in class today. Um, <laughs> it's underrated because people don't so much think about the campaign as much as they think about the commercial, mm. right? The commercial is, you know, the one running down and smashing the screen and all the on and on and on. They think about the commercial, and they don't recognize that there was a whole other campaign that became imitated and followed in the wake of that with all of the other things that they did to help launch the Macintosh, point of purchase materials, direct mail materials, public relations materials, a whole host of other things that becomes an example for one of the followed and widely imitated marketing techniques for the next several, you know, next decade and a half, which is integrated marketing communications. People drew a lot from that example of that Macintosh campaign as to how they incorporated things into the marketing and delivery of other products. So the 1984, if we think about it as a campaign, it's underrated. If we think about it as a commercial, eh, it's maybe a little bit overrated. But if we think about it as a campaign, it's it's I would call it I would call it underrated. That's a great way to I haven't I haven't thought about it that way, but you're, you're totally right. Is that sure the ad sure maybe they got they sell a bunch of computers. I think they, they made a record from the ad or something. But it's completely underrated how much it impact the future ad campaigns in the whole industry. Mm-hmm. So that's a, uh, yeah, I have not thought about it. And you're right. Like the way how they, it's just so like, like it's just so like disruptive in a way that like. And it, it, it wound up with a lot of talking value, right? It wound up being the, the thing, because the game that it played on, it only played once as a paid national ad, um, but it got so much other replay in so many other spaces in movie theaters, on, on talk shows that talked about the ad or whatever. Um, that taught, used it as a metaphor for you know Orwell's no, uh, novel 1984. So in that case, it's, it's does credit deserved. Overall, I call it a, a little, still a little bit underrated. The the next one would be political speeches, such as MLK I Have a Dream speech, or even Ronald Reagan uh, tear down this wall, mm-hmm. as a way to cause change. Because, you know, there's many other speeches, or maybe, you know, also in that category would be JFK, mm-hmm. uh, go to, let's go to the moon. But those are, you know, maybe also Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a lot, but, you know, politicians give spe- uh, speeches all the time. Mm-hmm. So those speeches, underrated or overrated? You know, I think, I think they're, they're still underrated because, you know, we often value speeches, see the value of speeches only in the rearview mirror. Right, because of the things that happen around them, the things that happen in their wake, the you know the ultimate culmination of the Civil War, Lincoln's assassination, uh, the ultimate destruction or the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union in the wake of Reagan's speech, what have you. So I still think, tied to their historical moments, 
again, seeing them in the rear view, I still think that they're uh, underrated. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And, and again, it's also the talks about the idea of uh, survivorship bias because... Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. You go ahead. No, but, you know, those those speeches still enca encapsulate a moment, right? They, right? they still mark a place and a space and time that really encaps, you know, can be taken to encapsulate a feeling, right? Or or some of Winston Churchill's great speeches or, or FDR's, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now, if we if, if the nation had failed to ever get out of the get out of the Great Depression, or if FDR had been a one-term president, maybe it wouldn't have the same meaning. But, you know, as that signature, as a signature moment, and he had many, but as a signature moment in their career, you know, these speeches become so associated with people and it becomes so emblematic of a time that it's, that it's hard to consider them, for me, it's hard to consider them overrated. And I think that's the point, right? Like, those moments are, even though they're instantaneous, if people keep coming back to it or think about it, even at a later at a later stage, mm -hmm. you know that it was a successful effort, or you can say it was a good campaigning effort, or like successful advertising. Mm -hmm. Just pretty interesting. Yeah. If you think. And it's again, they, they come to mark moments in time, right? Right. When when there were probably hundreds or thousands of speeches given when he said the only the, the same year that he said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But given what happens in their wake and the way that people kind of pull themselves and move themselves through the depression and the like, it, it just becomes emblematic of a, of a time, and it becomes a thing that we can continually turn back to and we can face in tough times. And as an emblematic moment, it reminds us, if we think about it at a nation level, it reminds us of a, of a moment in which the nation had to push through a great economic crisis, and ultimately, eventually, with a war on the backside, of course, um, ultimately, eventually, they, you know, they made their way through. So ideally gives people hope that, okay, in whatever our present moment is that has us turning back to that past moment, that we can do the, we can do the same. I'm sure that when the pandemic happened and the lockdowns and everything, you're very, you're making, you, I'm sure you had a lot of insights about how things were being set. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, when, when the first pandemic, uh, I mean, in March 2020, you know, people were saying, hey, like, don't, don't buy masks, it's not necessary, and mm -hmm. everything, you know, even, you know, ex-presidents and, and big political figures and people important in society were saying, you know, don't wear masks and everything. And, you know, the reason why, because, you know, we, we wanted to have enough supply for, for the healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a way of how people did that. And then there were the vaccines. There were, there were a lot of things how it was, you know, even now, like, there's a bunch of mixed evidence with masks and vaccines and everything. Mm -hmm. All of that. All of the advertising campaigns, because there were there were people behind those statements, where there were people and agencies and ad companies and everything mm -hmm. behind the decisions. Underrated or overrated? You know, that's. I feel like we're still living in that moment, and so it's you know it's hard to say. <laughs> uh, in I'll say this. In terms of the confusion that culminated in the moment that, in which we currently exist, I'd still put it under the heading of underrated, right? Because it felt like uh, so many mixed messages, right? Right. Uh, I saw a story today, just uh, yesterday, by way of example. Um, you know, the government did the thing with, uh, you know, 
apply here and get your own free home COVID test kit. And I saw a story and it was talking about, get rid, you know, uh, someone was saying the test kits are maybe 30, 30, will have 30 to 40% inaccurate results. Okay, well, now of course that means it'll have 60 to 70% accurate results, of course, but, you know, does somebody take a, and that's not an advertisement, that was a, that was a article on a, on a website, but in terms of a confusing message, what does a person listen to? Right. So I would say uh, I would still say underrated because the level of confusion that was caused by all of it, wherever it came from, it was enough that the only thing that you can get rousing agreement on today, whether whatever a person thinks about COVID and vaccines and masks, is that we're all tired. <laughs> right. We're all whether you think COVID is a hoax and a, a sham or created in a lab, whatever, whatever you think. But one thing that we can all agree on is it went far farther and it's gone on far longer than we would have ever expected and that we're all just tired of it. Yeah. Uh, being seemingly crazy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you can find people like Donald Trump or Elon Musk mm -hmm. that, you know, go around crazy or even people like, uh, I don't know if you've, if you've met this professor who goes around in the quad and screams, except rapper. Yeah. Um, I haven't had haven't had the pleasure. We actually had him on Tuesday, so I, I will send you the, the, the interview. Really? Yeah. yeah. He goes around the... He's a professor? Yeah. He's a professor. So, okay. the thing I'll is, if you don't... have to send that to me. And, please. you know, and, pol and police have come up to him. Students have given him money. Uh, it's insane. And the, the, the guy, you know, he got a PhD from Chicago, and, and he's written three books, and a professor of sociology. And he's a rapper. Oh, no, many things that he does, he's a rapper. Okay. And he goes around, and... He feels inspired. He just goes like yelling, like "wow" and like loud. You can hear like from many like. Wow. Um, anyway, but I, of course he's not crazy. Um, so people like him or people like Donald Trump, Elon Musk, you know, who seem like seemingly crazy from the outside, mm -hmm. such behavior for either marketing purposes, uh, business purposes, whatever. Overrated, underrated. I think it's overrated, and I'll tell you why. Is because. People sometimes look at what, of, of what they, they, they isolate the crazy behavior, right? Or they, they, they isolate the outlandish behavior and think that or approach whatever it is that you're trying to deal with as though if I just do that crazy behavior, I'll have the same success that that person has had, right? And that's not the case. Not for whatever a person thinks about Donald Trump, his image wasn't built in 2016. He didn't start building his image in 2015. His image is decade as billionaire tycoon success. His image as billionaire tycoon success is many decades old, right? You were speaking of rappers, um, the, the crazy, crazy professor rapper a morning ago. But you can go back to rap songs in the 1990s, for example, and his name being, being, being inserted into songs as an emblem of success. I'm going to fly around the world on my private jet like Trump, whatever the case is. So that image, decades old. Elon Musk, we think about him only as attached to Tesla, but that genius, iconoclastic image has many other things that are built into it. Right. And so sometimes and the reason why I say it's overrated is because people think, well, if I if I just do that thing, 
Well, they go on and they're crazy and they act wild and they say outlandish things and they insult people or they, they, they cuss or whatever the case may be. Whatever the outlandish behavior is, well, I just got to do that. Or, or, or I have to do that times 10. No, no. There's, if, you, if you dig in and you analyze, there's a whole host of other things that have allowed them to make, you know, maybe make that the singular part of the thing that they're recognized for. But you can probably look in the background and see a whole host of other things that they've either done or tried that got them to, to that point. I mean, again, for, uh, for, for Trump, again, that image of billionaire tycoon, I mean, that was solid. And it was there, it was there before 2015, and he's able, to he's able to tap into that, yes. He's able to tap into that, but also the notion of, and this, is, this has been discussed many times in American electoral history, that whatever the nation's problems are, it takes a business person to solve them. Right? And so he's able to tap into that as well, because who am I? Well, I'm a successful business person. right? And you've known me for the better part of you know, 20, 25 years as a successful business person, put me in charge. And so what people think, some people think, well, I just need to be outlandish. Well, I just need to insult. Well, I just need to, no, 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 no. There's a whole host, and that's what I meant earlier of, you can try, you can decide that you understand a person's formula. Just be crazy, just be outlandish, just be wild. Well, I'll just be crazy, outlandish, and wild. But you don't have the same, it won't have the same effect for you because you don't, you don't have the same foundation, you don't have the same background that that person has. So I think it's, I think it's very much an, un, uh, excuse me, an overrated approach. And, you know, perhaps they're not even being crazy. Like, they're just being themselves or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And last question. <laughs> I have to ask you this question. But if you were to put a billboard on Green Street, mm -hmm. what would you say? You know, that's a good that's a great question. Um, I think I would say something along the lines of, don't let the University of Illinois be the end of your education. Mm. Keep learning. Right? Because there's always so much to learn and you'll have so many chances to invent and reinvent yourself that whomever you decide you are at 22, 23, 26, you stay for grad school, whomever you decide at that point that you are, you don't have to be that person at 32 or 36. So don't, you know, don't ever stop learning, right? Don't think, well, I... <laughs> I got my bachelor's. I'm done. So don't stop. Don't stop learning ever. That's, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time for coming and to talk to us. I mean, we I had a great time learning so much well. from you, and we're really grateful for taking the time and coming to you know talk to to young guys who are trying to learn from the wisdom of people like you. So again, thank you so much. You are quite welcome. So thank you for having me. I thank appreciate you. Thank it. you very much. Um, for everyone watching, if, if you have any questions for Dr. Chambers, um, please feel free to put them in the comments and we'll try to get to him and get them answered. Um, I'm sure you learned a lot from this conversation. We, we touched on a lot of topics, misinformation, advertisement over the years. Um, and if that resonated with you in some way, I hope, um, you can put something in the comments if you if you would like to know more about it. Um, till then, um, I would say stay curious, and um, we'll see you guys in the next one. Thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. I love that. I love that. Stay stay curious. That's the other thing. I think I've I've noticed about a lot of successful people are just curious, just about a lot of stuff. There's and there's no consistency about what they're curious about. They're just just curious. I just I just like to learn stuff. I just like to know stuff. 
And that's that's actually one of the things that interests me about a lot of um, advertising creatives that I've run into in, you know, over the course of my uh, career, is they just have a lot of just different interests. It's like, and they, they bring a lot of those interests to advertising, and it makes them just wonderfully interesting people to talk to. Yeah, a lot and, of them. Yeah, and, and here, everyone tells you, you know, focus on one thing and do that. Yeah. And in reality, like the you know, most simple people, or whatever you want to say, so many interests. And when you look back, they're all like, they all combine perfectly to make that perfect ad or to make the perfect company, to make the perfect formula for your Coca-Cola or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is, again, so underrated, so kind of intuitive, and yeah, curiosity. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, you, you brought up Mark Andreessen earlier, and I, like you said, I mean, he would tell you, I wasn't the greatest, I, I wasn't the greatest coder, I didn't have the greatest ideas, but I, I, whatever it is I had, I had the right mix of something. Right. And maybe I got lucky, I got fortunate, and that's, you know, that's another interesting question that I like to, and maybe you guys can use this, that I like to ask entrepreneurs um, or, you know, high achievers, where were you lucky, mm. right? And it's, you almost always will get an interesting answer back that somewhere, you know, they can, if they pause and think about it, somewhere in there was just a moment where they were just lucky, fortunate, right place, right time, but that becomes the part of it that you just can't replicate. Now, you have to be in place to be lucky. You have to have done the work to be lucky, of course, but when it when those things meet, right, then they, you know, many of them will say that was, you know, that was my moment. That was my, that was the thing that took me to where I was, even if I wasn't the best at this or the best at that or the most accurate at this, but all of my work came together in just the right moment when I met the right person, right location, whatever the case may be. Thank you for that. I yeah, appreciate it. I, I, I have to decide. Somebody said that to me, and I was like, that's a, you know, that's a great question. Yeah. And so I, I've asked it ever <laughs> since, and I've almost always gotten just a really interesting answer back. You know, some people don't like to think about it as luck. Some people, if they're religious, like to think about it in terms of being blessed. Some right. will say lucky or blessed. Um, and you almost always will get an interesting answer kind of back because they can probably pinpoint a place where their career or their options and opportunities just kind of turned or took off. And, you know, you can, you know, you cannot just tell me, you know, that question without having to ask that question. Back exactly. Here. But did you get that one? I do want to know that. <laughs> you know, for me, it was probably when I was in graduate school, I was an undergrad. Um, the moment that set me in the course of the career that I'm on, I was an undergrad and I was talking to a professor, uh, just a professor in the, in the history department at the school that I went to, Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And she told me I should consider going to graduate school. And I, had never, I hadn't thought about it before, because like I was planning to teach in high school, maybe coach and things of that nature. And then she started telling me what it was about and so forth. And that was the, that was the path, the part that put me on the path that, um, you know, that I'm on. Yeah, because if you didn't have that person. Yeah, and it was just one of those conversations after class one day, but it became one of those impactful conversations because I, I took the path forward. Um, took the path forward from there. Right? So I just stayed after class one day and we were just talking one day and that's where it, that's where it came from. Yeah, I, this is economist Tyler Cowen. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he says is that one of the, uh, the greatest return thing you can do for the world, the greatest investment with the highest uh, return investment, he says that it's increasing the ambitions, the ambitions of people. Mm 
mm -hmm. like telling them, okay, you want to do X? How about you do X, but also you do X squared? It's mm -hmm. like the biggest thing too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something I, I pretty do. Um, because, you know, like, you know, who am I to, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one, but like, who am I to like tell, you know, you're, oh, you're thinking of becoming a, you know, in a, you know, an engineer for, to work at X company. Mm -hmm. Why don't you, knowing what you know, why don't you try to create such a company? Why don't you try to work on a project that you actually want to do or something, something like that. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that's something that I always try to do. And so I, I have, I have, an, I have a blog, so I write essays. Mm -hmm. and I think one of the biggest things that I, the common pattern looking back at hundreds of essays I've written has been that I've always tried to, you know, wait, show some things I do or like show or like tell people, okay, it doesn't matter if you're in high school or in college, there are always things you can do that are almost a little more. Mm -hmm. And the reason why you can go a little more is because what's stopping you? Like there's, there's still like a cap of what you can do right. at your age. Mm -hmm. It's usually you either did not think about it or you just didn't know it was possible. Mm -hmm. Something I always try to do because I think, you know, completely, you know, I'm not thinking about myself or anyone, just like for the world is such a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just yeah. pushing people beyond what they feel comfortable doing. Yeah. And I think I think that's wonderfully said. And and that's where it's important to, you know, the network of people that you have around you. You know, you, you, you keep people around you that can inform, keep people around you who can encourage, people can people around you who can push you to do more than you think that you can do or to ask for more than you think that, you know, that you can do, right? And that's one thing, that actually, that was actually a point brought up last night at the, um, at the Freelancers and Entrepreneurs Forum is, you know, the, because the question came up or the question sometimes comes up, you know, how do I know when to work for free to try to build my portfolio or to build my experience, to build my deck, what have you, versus, you know, versus charge. And, you know, their response was every great, once again, you might do something pro bono if it's, you know, maybe a social service cause. But other than that, if it's part of your work, know your value, right? Know your value and, and charge accordingly, right? And don't let people devalue you. And one of them said, because, and she said, my reason is because of the people, if they could do it themselves, they would, they would do it, right? So if they can't do it themselves and they want you to do it, then your time is worth something, right? So, you know, so charge accordingly. But that's, but that's sometimes hard for people to do. Well, I don't have any experience. How can I actually charge money? Do you know how to do something that they don't? Well, yeah. Charge them money if you, know, if you want. Of course, you can charge them time, or you can barter services, or whatever the case may be. But get the value for whatever your own investment is, and don't allow others to, you know, to necessarily devalue to to you know to that point of you know you keep you know keep pushing, keep striving, keep trying to achieve, keep you know keep creating, right? keep innovating, and that you know those that as a skill set or that as an approach will always you know will always serve you well. That's the American spirit, in a way. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, it's, there's so many options and opportunities available to you now that you know you don't. We don't have to make the same level of investments that we, you know, that you used to. Like I said, like we were talking about earlier, but not that long ago, if you wanted to have a business that you had to, you had to pay for, you know, a rental location. That was where you started. You couldn't. People wouldn't take. Well, people won't take me seriously if I work out of my house. So I got, you know, I have to rent an office. So I go. Pay for a lease for someone for six months. Business fails, and now I'm on the hook for, you know, you know, eight hundred dollars worth of rent for the next three months. So, you know, 
there's so many options and opportunities out there. You just keep pushing and striving. And that, that's something I'm so excited about because not only the cost of making the thing you're trying to make are so almost for free all the time, mm -hmm. but also the way to distribute that, to advertise it. Mm -hmm. You can go to Twitter, and they're all, you know, Facebook, whatever, mm -hmm. they're all free. And you can, the distribution, the cost, and just being able to do that thing. Mm -hmm. It just, it's one of the things I'm most grateful for and something that I'm very aware of. Mm -hmm. and I have, I think that's where one part of my big sense of urgency comes from is that we have these things that we have mm -hmm. that are, you know, like free. We have this distribution that we have that, you know, people, I don't know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. they had no idea it would be possible. Mm -hmm. And we're so fortunate to have those things that it would be such a dishonor, like this service to the world, to, to ourselves, to not do that thing. Mm -hmm. And to not do it because you felt you couldn't do it, or because you were afraid, or because you had X recent. So that's something I always think about, because there are so many things, like you said, mm -hmm. so many things you can do. You don't know how they're going to be helpful, or how they're going to make you successful, or how they're going to make you money. But as long as you... Like it's usually something that happens in you in your brain or something that like you, you just feels right. It just feels like you have the energy, mm -hmm. and do not do such things because of homework or because of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. It just come. That's I think that's if I had to put a definition of crazy, that would be one of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you know you use the energy while you got it because you know you won't always have it and use the use the resources of a place like the University of Illinois, right? You know you've got some of. The, some of the world's great thinkers here, you know, exactly. they sit in their offices and they'll answer the email because you're a student. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> so use, you know, use those resources, use the things that you have access to, you know, use, you know, use, use what's in front of you. And I think sometimes that that is also a challenge that people run into is they, they make the mountain so, so high to climb that again, back to my point about the, you know, that I was telling you about the game that they, they look up and I, I, I haven't, I haven't started. I haven't actually started. You know, I was talking to some members but a couple of years ago, and they wanted to, they wanted to start a website. You know, some of them want to start a website or whatever it was. And you know, you see them a few weeks later. Oh, how's, how's the website going? Oh, well, you know, it's not. I didn't really get it done. This and that, that, this. And well, why not? Well, I couldn't decide on the colors. <laughs> so they, they, well, they had gotten caught up into you know color psychology. You know, orange means this, blue means that, purple means the other. So they allow themselves to get. Get, get slowed down by the minutiae of the thing that they didn't, you know, completely sapped what energy they had because they're sitting there ruminating over. Well, is it purple combined with yellow and green? And they, they, just, they, they, they never got started. And, and, but that's the difference between, and, you know, I was talking about Steve Jobs today, so it's probably why it's on my mind. But, um, you know, I always like what he said, which is real artists ship. Some point, man. If you if you're really a writer, you you put the thing out there for people. If you're really a creator, you create something. You give it, you give people a space to, to look at it and, and comment on it. And so, you know, my, my example is the person from the website. They they wanted. I'm sure that they wanted to create, but they allowed themselves to get caught and slowed down by something that ultimately wouldn't doesn't matter. Right. But if you read, or at least, you know, you allowed yourself to get stopped by probably on a list of what is step number 5,742, you let it get, you let it stop you on step three. And, you know, now you, now you don't have your website. Right. So that's the other thing, you know, you don't let, don't let, don't let silly things stop mm -hmm. you.
Yeah, I think uh, the the guy from LinkedIn, the guy who founded LinkedIn, mm-hmm. he said that if you don't, if you don't, it, by the time you launch your ship or your product, mm-hmm. if you're not embarrassed uh, by it, you you launch too late, mm-hmm. which is the which, which is the idea of um, you know, pardon my French, but if you don't make a shitty like draft or shitty like products, you're not gonna be able to like for me like I write I write a lot or like I create a lot of things, and I, during the pandemic I decided to make I'm gonna make a hundred videos for every day for a row. Mm-hmm. They were all bad, like bad, like bad, bad. Like if you look at it, but like mm-hmm. once you you know you're learning whatever, but they were bad, mm-hmm. and that experience helped me to make better videos right now. Mm-hmm. And if you if you were to compare the two, like how in your right mind would you put the video out there? But of course, it doesn't matter. Like, they're bad. Like my a lot of my assets are bad. I know that for a fact. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter because it's like it's like you said. In in that, I always remember this story of um, this. This you know, it's sculpture class, and the there were two type of uh, classes, the same class, same professor, everything, and there were two sections. So there, there one section was okay, you have thirty days, and you need to make this sculpture, mm-hmm. and so one class section A, and the sculpture, how it was going to be done is that you're going to learn from the best, you're going to read all the books, you're going to get, you're going to learn all the details. Mm-hmm. Section B, make one sculpture every day. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the both the sections of the other 30 days, the better sculpture was from section B, the people who make one bad sculpture every day for 30 days, mm-hmm. which talks about the idea, you know, yeah. quality, you know, when you're starting out, quality is not as important, but the quantity is a lot more important when you're starting out. And of course, when you, once you get, you know, big enough and everything, then of course, mm-hmm. worry about the detail and like everything. Mm-hmm. And I think like we are like such a great like yeah. partners because I'm I'm very like okay let's make the video like you know I, for years I made YouTube videos on my phone which mm-hmm. is bad bad audio whatever and for him he would never do that mm-hmm. he would make sure he would have the best camera best light best this best <laughs> all the best mm-hmm. and I think we make such such a great like partnership like such a great like project sure. because we complement each other like so well and yeah I think you just you learn so much like, all, all of these things that will. Yeah. That you don't know how in the future they will help you, but it's like I know things you said to me, you said to us today. We'll come back in the future and like, oh my god, mm-hmm. I you know this professor told me this, and like, thank you, like, yeah. thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you know, I appreciate that because it, you know I remember it, and it, it still is. I mean, it's it's so easy to get intimidated, intimidated, especially when you study people that are more successful at whatever the thing is than you. That's why I want to. One of my favorite books, and I turn back to it every few years, is a book called The Courage to Write. Right, The Courage to Write. And what the point of the book is, is it goes through a number of people whom we would consider, regardless of genre, a number of people that we would consider to be you know, great writers, great authors, right? Written world-changing books, or written you know, books that people will read as long as there is anything called books. And this book talks about some of their own anxieties about their own work, how they thought it was going to fail, how they nobody's going to like this, and it becomes, then it becomes these world-changing, you know, these world-changing experiences for people. And so the, the point is that even amongst the people that we consider to be maybe so successful, so confident in what they, you know, what it is that they've done, they've got this whole other host of, you know, worries and anxieties and concerns about what it is that they that they that they've done. But they also have that last little bit, which is that 
courage to write, courage to produce, courage to create, courage to release. And that's what separates them. Again, that person from them from that person who wanted to write the book versus the person who's actually written and, and released the book. And that I think is always, you know, in terms of books and things, it's always been something that I like to remind myself of, you know, those anxieties, those worries, even those people who are, you know, hella successful, <laughs> right? They still have those, you know, they still have those same like concerns. I was who was I I was just watching a story, I forget which I think it was a basketball player. It was a professional athlete. Um, very successful. I forget their name right now. But they talked about how they still threw up before games. Mm. <laughs> it's like when we put your and I wish I could remember their name. But I remember reading and I said, But you're person X and you've got all this success and you, you know, so but no, I still have the same fears that I did like back when I was on the junior varsity team. <laughs> But I still go out there. I go out there on the field or on the court or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, garbage in, garbage out. But so be careful who you listen to. So. Yeah, and I think that something like this, this project is like, it's a way to curate. You know, that's a way to like. It's like, like we are learning so much here. Like we have so far, we've had ten episodes, and we've learned about and like so many topics that. I don't think you would have learned in four years of right. a, of, a, of of class of, of a of a degree or whatever, mm -hmm. and I think it's like you said, like listening to people who who are. It's like you said, like it's it's kind of hard to describe, but you know, like who you know, like being careful to who you listen to in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and learning the right thing from it. Yeah, yeah, and learning the piece of pieces of it. You know, you could talk to a person for two hours. And only 30 seconds of it means anything to you, but you had a good conversation, but that 30 seconds is the thing that resonates with you, and you just, you know, you carry that thing forward with you, and that becomes the little piece of it, back to our, you know, our talk, our discussion of speeches. That becomes the, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself moment from that two hours that you spend with that person. So the rest of it, you, you know, you kind of eject, but that 30 seconds kind of matters to you, or the skills that you're developing just in, you know, just in doing what you're doing here, right? The trying or, or the thing that you learn when you know when one of the cameras fails and well we thought we had to we thought we had this over here but this, this is how we learned to edit it this is what we decided you know the next yeah. thing you know you know you guys graduate or whatever even beforehand and you, you know you're selling your services as, as short film producers right? short, <laughs> short videos short content creators because you've got a skill and as long as you have a skill that a lot of, that other people don't have and they want the thing done Man, I just need you to do the thing. Can you do the thing? Yeah. Okay. Boom. Then how, how much do you charge? And that's it. Right? And so the skill set you develop, you know, that you, you, know, you always, you always have it with you. Yeah, it's like, um, you can say that almost like someone, someone who's successful, was not afraid to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And and if, if they're candid, they'll tell you, man, I made that. I made a lot. Of yeah. I, I made a lot. Of I remember one of the. the person that I'm writing about that I wrote my third book about advertising man by the name of Tom Morrell he you know there was a moment at which he was almost out of business mm. right a moment which he's almost out of business and we so we talked about his mistakes and he was like you know what there was at that point in my career I was consumed with the product so consumed with the production of advertising that the content of our advertising be so great that i I wasn't paying the attention that I should have to the finances of the business. You know, I'd have accountants come in, I'd hire people, but they started, he said, he said, they started talking about things and I'd go, yeah, whatever. 
because I wasn't concerned about the finance of it. And not being concerned about the finance of it almost put me out of business. I almost overlooked things for so long that I didn't have a business uh, left to come back to. So mistakes like that, right? You know, if you read about him, you might think, oh man, that's a great businessman. He's in, in business for over 40 years. His agency's still around. He sold it. He's a multimillionaire. He lives down in Florida now, on and on and on and on and on. But if you talk to him, you know the story. My own mistakes almost put me out of business, put me back on the street. So, yeah. And people will tell you that if they're, if they're candid, but that's where I like the question, where were you? Where were, were you, you looking? Where were you looking? Where were you fortunate? Where were you? Where were you blessed? Mm. And a lot of times they'll sit back and they'll think, and you get a really interesting answer kind of back. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, is that, it's a, uh... So it's a great question. I think even if you ask me, you're like, you should think about the answer. Just such a wonderful like exploration of like thoughts, of thoughts and things. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, because so much of it again, it's it's you know, obviously the like they say, the harder you work, the luckier you get. But it's you know, you have to be in place for the luck. But it's usually there's just somewhere along the line, you're just like, right. hmm, yeah, it was right there. My life kind of yeah, just kind of turned. Hey, it was a conversation with. This professor, that professor, <laughs> that 10 second, 30 second, they just literally changed everything. Yeah. I was in the, I was, my, my office was in the right building. I was in the hallway and so and so <laughs> mentioned. And, you know, I decided to go down to the hotel bar and I started talking to and went from there. So, yeah, you get a lot of interesting, interesting answers. Right? So, well, things happen. <laughs> yeah. well, you, guys, thank you for inviting me. Of course. It was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. So, thank you. We appreciate you. it. Yeah, well, and also send me that uh, send me that information about the professor.